Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in low-carbon fuels and vehicles and other future fuels issues. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Paul O'Connor from Antisee. And we're going to talk about advanced biofuels. And there's probably nobody else I know in advanced biofuels that has more background, more history, and more experience in trying to commercialize advanced biofuels and advanced alternative fuels than Paul O'Connor. So, Paul, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you for the nice introduction. It's great to have you. Indeed, I think the key word is keep trying. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And there's nobody who's tried more than you, I think, than uh, in this space. And I think that you have some valuable insight and experience. And we're sort of at this interesting um, crossroads. Well, from my perspective, you're beginning to see governments, especially in Europe, respond with uh, policies to really support uh, advanced biofuels. You see some companies that are really on the cusp uh, of breakthroughs. Um, some interesting things are happening in the space that I want to talk to you about. But before we get into all that, can you talk about your uh, company, um, Antisee, and give the listeners an overview of the technology what it does, and where it stands in terms of commercialization. So let, why don't we start there with your own company? Antisy is not, say, not really biofuels anymore. In principle, all, uh, let's say, fossil materials and biomass have been formed via solar energy and photosynthesis. And uh, what working on, on biomass, what in fact uh, came up time and time again, is that really we're only taking a fraction of the solar energy. And let's say, for instance, in sugarcane, it's 1%, which is captured and then converted into biomass and which then we can convert into oil. And in fossil fuels, the same happen. But nature has uh, all the time, so it's no problem. So in a billion of years, billions of years, a lot of uh, uh, fossil fuels have built up. And, and the reason we are getting in trouble with the carbon balance is when we try to burn it in a couple of hundred years. But if you look at solar efficiency, then nowadays with photovoltaics, uh, you can capture up to 20% uh, solar energy already. And they're talking about and demonstrating 40%. So solar energy, solar electricity is really becoming cheaper and cheaper and starting to drive, for instance, coal out of business in the stationary power generation. So I believe that solar and wind energy is going to really compete in this area. Uh, with the production of uh, low-cost hydrogen. And if we can uh, co- convert that into uh, fuels again, methanol, diesel, that that will really be uh, a high-efficiency way to convert solar energy into fuels. So in my view, and that's my vision, is that future energy storage is not a, a, a lithium battery, but uh, a fuel cell running on low-carbon methanol, ethanol, or any other liquid fuel, which is has higher energy density and overall more efficient. Strangely enough, in all this uh, scenario, CO2 is a, is a missing link. Because you say, well, there's a lot enough CO2, but to do this, to convert CO2 into methanol with renewable hydrogen, you need concentrated and clean CO2. And uh, that technology is, is not really available yet. So that's where Antisee developed a new technology. 
to capture CO2 and uh, with the low amount of energy requirement and using an environmental friendly system so that once we, with the renewable energy, we can make hydrogen and hydrogen has become cheaper and with CO2 either from, from uh, flue gas or even from uh, open air, we can get the CO2 to con- concentrate that, to convert it into methanol. The unique features of our technology is that it's low cost. It requires a low amount of low value heat. But very important is we're not using any toxic materials. State of the art technology, as you know, in refineries, as it's A mines. Now, there are, they have already the toxicity issues, but because they also are rather unstable, after many cycles, they can degrade and they can even form, uh, nitros- nitrosamines, which are carcinogenic. So in, in several applications, you are limited by using them. We are using a carbonate system. It's very simple and that does not have these problems. So we developed this in the last uh, five years or so and uh, coming to the where we stand now, we did last year uh, extensive study together with Shell Global Solutions because they were interested in this and at least they say, well, you know, this is a, this technical, it is viable. So it's not a, a process which cannot work. You know, we all looking at, uh, are there any thermodynamic limitations, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it also has economic viability. The economic viability, of course, depends also on having low-cost electricity available. So what we dis- dis- discuss with them is to put together a project to see how we can reduce the cost of CO2 even further. And in principle, with the idea also to be able to compete with existing A-mine systems, which are taking the CO2 out of flue gas. And uh, we think that is possible, and we're working on that. On the other hand, in the same time, we already see now that the first cases, uh, business cases, where there is low-cost electricity available and where there's a need to convert that into electric fuel are arising. In fact, there's already one unit running, which is in Iceland, where with uh, hydroelectric electricity, they're converting CO2 into methanol. Now, this methanol... In, in, in Iceland, it is easy because this CO2 is coming out of the ground, pure. So that is very simple. But already that unit now is limited because there's not enough CO2. And this sounds very strange to many people outside of this world. They say, well, you mean there's a shortage of CO2? Say, yes, there are many, many places there's a shortage of clean, high concentration CO2. So that is where we can plug in. And recently we've been working with, uh, Mitsubishi Hitachi Power Systems, which they have developed the, uh, the Iceland plant and looking for a place to do a first uh, demonstration of this technology. Coming to the, let's say, the regulations, uh, in Europe now, low carbon methanol has quite a high value. Like you know, there's a significant amount of low carbon fuels needs to be blended. At present, the biofuels are not able to supply all this, this demand and low carbon Methanol is an alternative, so there is real demand for that. Uh, so that is how we see uh, how the technology is, is now made available. It is simple. It can be done. And now we're looking to find the first place to develop the market, to develop the first demo to get this into the market. What's the timeline in terms of a potential demo? Would it be in the next year, next two years, a little longer? 
in fact, we are already making a design. We made a design, and there was one uh, potential customer, but not allowed to disclose that. But they were still thinking about the exact location of such a demo. And the demo, that idea of that demo would be very interesting because it was not not only to demonstrate this technology, but of course the the next step, which is uh, which is really uh, interesting, is when you start using this methanol in combination with methanol fuel cells. So in this case, they were thinking of a plant to produce uh, low-carbon methanol, uh, taking the CO2 direct out of air, so using antacid technology, but then also using the methanol in, in, in cars and even a boat to demonstrate the overall system. I'm not sure if that's going through. This was one of the most interesting cases. They're, they're still looking at... Uh, deciding on what would be the, the right location to do this. The timing was would be in the first, the decision to go ahead would be in the first half of next year, in 2017. So I want to turn to your adventures with Kior. And Jim Lane at Biofuels Digest has covered the Kior situation in much depth, as you very well know. For anyone in the who is listening who is interested in, in learning more about Kior and Paul's um, um, involvement with it, can go to biofuelsdigest.com and search for Kior. And there is, I think, a five-part series that really goes into a – it's really quite a saga. It's like gone with the wind. It's like gone with the wind, but for advanced biofuels. There was no Clark Gable in that situation, that's for sure. But anyone can go onto his site and uh, search for that. Again, it's biofuelsdigest.com. So Jim wrote about this in uh, in a lot of depth, but you were the creator, you were the um, inventor. And what was it like to actually go through all of that and – you know, and my second question, you know, sort of a three-part question, what was the best and, and what was the worst for you? And more importantly, what does it say, what was the biggest lesson learned and what does it say for anyone attempting to commercialize not only an advanced biofuel, but an advanced alternative uh, fuel? Love to hear from you on that. It started as a, an adventure, a, a dream come true. Yeah, so, I made a big jump leaving uh, Albemarle at the time, starting my own business at the end of 2005. But I got the opportunity, uh, help of friends uh, on the financial side, to develop my ideas together with a, a group of really the best uh, scientists in Europe, catalyst scientists, etc. And uh, within a year, showing that we could have some breakthroughs, uh, that was in 2006. And then in 2007, after uh, trips to the States, getting the full support from Vino Koshla to move ahead to commercialize the technology. So that is what more can you ask for? I mean, that is a dream come true. You had everything. I mean, you had Vino. And actually, you know what? I just remember, I think that's when I met you. I met you when you were still at Albemarle, actually. That's how I, that's how long I've known you. So you had everything. Our mutual friend, Pankaj Desai. Because indeed, you know, my pre- previous life was AXO, mainly AXO, and then the fuels with the fuels conference, etc. But anyway, so that was really a dream come true. And what I remember the, the first, when we made the first oil also in Houston, etc., I said, you know, business is hard, it was tough getting, but then I thought, oh, now it's going, now we've proven it can be done, it can only be successful. But really then it, it turned, it slowly started to turn into a nightmare. 
and uh, I still do not understand exactly why. But the, the original ideas which we had coming from Biocon were like put aside. And not only the ideas, but also the network. Uh, you know, like I said, I was talk, working with people in Europe like Professor Moulin from Delft, guys from uh, Twente, uh, Dr. Session, who has a lot of experience in pyrolysis, Professor Vassalos and, and Lapas in Greece, not to forget Korma in Valencia, where we really did the first work with biomass catalytic cracking in his mini test unit, uh, his upside down unit, and produced for the first time good quality pyrolysis oil, which is very unique. But at certain moments, the people in, in, uh, in Houston were like, were separating us. And uh, it, you cannot really believe it, but yes, but uh, at certain moments, the European artists were not even allowed to visit Cure anymore because of so-called security issues. I said, as if, you know, Jonas Kluzer, as if the guys in Houston had more knowledge on biomass conversions than the people who really developed it. It's it's very strange. I think it's yeah. I don't want to go too much in blame and that kind of stuff, but it's kind of a non-invented here behavior. They thought they had to invent their own process. And so at that moment, the cure took a kind of a different turn. They they took, and because now I think it's important for me to say this because on the technology side, because I believe the technology still can work, but then they took a shortcut and they neglected what many people now see as the most important part, which is the biomass pretreatment step. Before you do anything, you need to pretreat the biomass properly. They thought that was not necessary, and so they left that. And I think that was the start of the of the problems. Anyway, I kept warning them, and others kept warning them, and tr- offering also to get back on track. But uh, also there, I, I do not understand why I never was said, well, okay, let's still try to do it in the other way. But um, the way I explain it is like the husband who takes the wrong exit on the freeway and does not want to admit to his wife that he's lost. And you know what happens then? You get even deeper, lo- more lost. Still, I hope that with all the money spent by Koshan others, because you have to realize at a certain moment, I think nearly up to 100 people were working there in R&D. But we had two big pilot plants, the Grace pilot plants converted to pure technology, a large $20 million demo plant. And that, you know, at certain moments, they would be able to, you know, I call it reset and uh, solve the problems, but it didn't, didn't happen. They kept on the same road, and yes, that hit, uh, of course, the wall. So that's very sad, also not only for the people there, for Cure, for all of us, but for the whole industry, because I think, and that's the thing which hurts me the most, that it has hurt the whole industry. People say, oh, you know, you see, it can't be done. And that is the wrong conclusion. I think that's the wrong conclusion. Because they do do that. I mean, to, to this day, they do point that. The, I mean, if Kior, I think, to advanced biofuels is like Solyndra to solar, solar here, if you've heard about the Solyndra case here. And actually, there are people um, who are in energy and should know, you know, that the costs of solar are dropping, the subsidies are going away, and it really is a technology, as you know, that can stand on its own. But there are still people, even in energy, who are educated, presumably people in this industry who say, 
well, it's Solyndra, so, I mean, you know, and they will point to that. And it's like, wow, I mean, you know, solar, there's a total uh, disconnect um, there. And I wonder if the same um, will happen or is happening with Kior. They point to Kior and say, um, can't happen. And, yeah, I mean, and there have been other issues, I think, for the industry that have only compounded that further. And it's And it's very sad because there's so much potential there. What I think is important because, of course, I had to let off some steam about the personality issues there. But I think what's most important to just understand what are the facts, what's what are really the problems. Eh? And that is maybe you, you asked about what's the biggest lesson. I, I think the biggest lesson in all this, and it's really, really, it's very obvious, but it's, sometimes you have to come back to the obvious. You have to keep a, a, keep an eye on have to having the technology right and the business case right and questioning that time and time go again and keep questioning that so you need to have an open debate with the right people using the critical skills and they keep questioning what's going on i mentioned uh, the professor mulane who worked with in delft he, he calls it reality check so every now and then I sit together what's reality check and you know of course we like to tell the good stories fantastic great but say no i want to know what's wrong yeah, what's what can be improved at shell you know we did the shell has a system of doing what we call technical risk registering to, to do go through everything which can go wrong and check what can go wrong what can go wrong and how can we fix it you need to keep doing that the moment you lose that out of eye you make it risk and then uh, hidden problems you know problems it's good to have if you have a problem put it on the table if the problem is hidden Intentionally or unintentionally, at a certain day, it will come out of the swamp and it will kill you because it will be a big, it will be a monster. So that is, that, that is, that is the, the lesson. And of course, we all like to hear good news. That's the way the world works. But as, as a good leader, you have to also want to hear the bad news because that's where you can make progress, we fix things. Well, that does seem to be one of the issues is see no evil, hear no evil. What you're saying is that can be very detrimental when you're trying to solve problems and break through and, um, and get, get this technology, you know, off, really off the ground. Bad things also create some good things sometimes. Biocon, we continued and then we're working on, on the routes, routes to convert biomass and, uh, Separate to the, the pyrolysis route, we are also working on, on a liquid route, which is based on zinc chloride. At the time, uh, we were working with Petrobras to develop a kind of a diesel additive, whereby we were converting biomass in situ in zinc chloride into a oxygenate. Now, that is a very complex process. Uh, Petrobras invested a lot in it. Unfortunately, they, that also has now stopped with the difficult situation at Petrobras. But along the way, we then went back and said, look, this first step in which you take apart the biomass, maybe that is what's the key. And and what we see there now is that we, we have a, developed a simple process in which you have the biomass and split it into a lignin, a cellulose, and of course, the hemicellulose. But the, the remarkable thing is that the lignin and cellulose that we are making is not the original, but is in fact a, how you call it, defilibrated uh, cellulose. So we can use the cellulose to feed it directly to the enzymes to convert into ethanol, for instance. They do not first need to be converted into sugars, but also the cellulose has a value as a natural polymer. 
interesting in the time, at a certain moment, of course, we were looking to alternative applications. And one of the people who visited us and uh, was looking, they said, you know, you know what you're doing, trying to con- convert cellulose into sugars, that that's a downgrading. The cellulose that you're making now, it's a, it's a high value product on itself. And uh, because, but the problem with cellulose up to now is it was not unlocked out of the polymers, on, out of the biomass. But once you take it out of the biomass, you can use it for all kind of applications. So we're focusing more on that, and also, and that comes to to the um, the issue of, of the lessons of the technology. I think I think one of the big one of the big problems with biomass is that it's very different than fossil fuels, hydrocarbons. And sometimes we forget it. I mentioned again, Professor Moulin, who in 2006 did his, what he called valedictory speech, you know, when he stepped down as professor after many years. And at that time, he just started working for, for Biocon with us. He was consultant. And he, he made a comparison, showed the difference between carbohydrates and hydrocarbons. You know, hydrocarbons, uh, we need to put a high temperature and uh, a lot of catalysts to convert it. With carbohydrates, I mean with biomass, once we unlock it, unlock it once it is uh, activated, you know, it reacts as crazy. And before you know it, you're producing what we call in the lab creme brulee, and other people call it black chewing gum. And it's it's because the oxygen in there is so reactive, and this has caused many problems in many processes. Probably you you don't remember anymore because but there was this this plant in Germany which is Coren, uh, Shell invested in that. It also did not work, and also there were a lot of problems because the the reactivity of the biomass is so great. You can gasify coal. Gasifying biomass is a lot tougher. Same with pyrolysis. The idea of biocon, there are two ways you can go. One way is go very fast, high temperature to a stable oxygenate. So that was basically what we were trying to do at Cure or what we did at Biocon by catalytic pyrolysis, making a bio oil, which is stable. And our, my vision was that it's about 10% oxygen or lower, not higher. The, the other approach is Remain at low temperature, and so avoid this uh, the conversion of the of the oxygen containing carbohydrates, and that's then in a solvent like zinc chloride. If you go in the wrong region, so that you get uh, a reactive oxygen, then you're in trouble. The problem at Cure was that indeed because the pretreatment of the biomass uh, was not done, it was very difficult to get the oxygen down. So the, so they were producing higher oxygen. Uh, bio oil from the uh, pyrolysis. Now, the first problem is that you cannot hydrotreat the stuff because if you heat it up before it gets to the hydrotreater, it starts making the black chewing gum or gummy balls or whatever, and it and it plugs your uh, the catalyst. The guys at QR kept telling me that they had found a way to avoid that and that it could be done. Uh, maybe it did in research or a few days in the hydrotreater, but you don't want the hydrotreater which runs a week in the hydrotreater which runs six months. So, so it was so critical that uh, that's really a big lesson. And we see it coming back now also with, with the cellulosic ethanol. Enzymes is not my field, so I'm, I'm, I only learn from what others tell me. But also the enzymes do not like 
certain carbohydrates. You know that many of the ways to, to unlock the, the cellulose are quite uh, aggressive. So either aggressive acids, high temperature, steam explosion. And what you see that when that happens, a part of the sugars, you also create some what we call degradation products. Uh, you can see that they're like, they're, they give a color, they're black, etc. But those, those materials, they are inhibitors or even poisons to the enzymes. And that has created a lot, also a lot of problems in the first commercial cellulosic ethanol plants. So uh, I think the same problem is happening there. The solution is we have to go to a very mild disentanglement of the biomass. And uh, we believe that can be done with the zinc chloride. We're working below 100 degrees Celsius. We are not making any, de de uh, how you call it, uh, degradation products. And we've seen that doing that, you can not only, you do not need to convert it to the sugars, but also the amount of enzymes required and enzyme, uh, enzymes like the stuff better because they're not getting the inhibitors. These are all technical importance, but coming back to the, the business side, not even thinking about all the problems we have because the oil price is so low. If you have a plant, which I think also Jim Lane pointed that out in one of his stores, if you have a plant which is only running 20% of the time, because that even if your yields are fantastic, it's still bad. And, and what we see is that a lot of these plants, and that was the problem with Cure, was the problem with Core, but apparently also at some of these cellulose ethanol plants is that the, in fact, the on-stream time of the plants is really what is killing it. So that is, uh, that's trying to, for me, to try to get out as much as possible the thinking and see, well, I, because I believe, I'm optimistic, I think all these problems can be solved. But why don't we have more commercial-scale advanced biofuels in the marketplace, aside from the technical issues that you've just uh, discussed? And what needs to happen, especially on the policy side? Like, what, what policy interventions can actually help this along? Before you even talk about policy, the problem that comes back to the people, entrepreneurs and investors have been really very disillusioned because of the failures in this, what they call space. Eh? We talk Coran, Rage Fuels, Cure, whatever. And, and now apparently, I don't know officially, but I hear that there are really very serious problems in several of the cellulosic ethanol plants and that they're also running at very low, some of them, I don't know, at very low um, on stream time. But that is that is making it very difficult to convince people that, okay, now we have the solution. You know, it's like some people have nearly given up on it. A while ago, I spoke with one, one expert, a real expert in this field of one of the large oil and energy companies. And he told me, you know, Paul, I think it will take another 10 years before biomass conversion is mature enough to apply commercially. I think he, he was just depressed. Because of all the bad news, because that's really, uh, I, and I, but that's, that's a barrier which we'll need to challenge to be able to convince the people and the entrepreneurs, the investors that, okay, we have learned from our failures and the, the improvements that we have in mind now have a bigger chance of success and with, with, with less risk. So I think that, uh, yeah, one idea, for instance, we are in, 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 in Europe. There's a plan to uh, make Rotterdam a kind of a, a biorefinery. And uh, so uh, what we're trying to, to, to convince them to say, well, maybe we can build one plant 
in which we uh, get in biomass waste and uh, refine it into you know this this cellulose cellulose commodity which we then can supply to existing first generation ethanol plants which they can use instead of sugar so this is a, let's say a a low risk way of trying to make the transition you know we we, we can wait and ask for changes in policy but uh, i think we have to do something from I, we that people who are developing have to give the policymakers also give them the options to show that there are some new things which are possible and credible options of course so one of the things that's so interesting, your oil company friend saying 10 more years, my boss, Fred Potter, you remember Fred, he passed yeah. away several years ago, but that was, he always used to sort of tongue in cheek joke about, you know, cellulosic in, in particular. He's like, you know, I've been hearing about cellulosic, you know, since the seventies. And when you ask, you know, uh, some people is like, oh, 10 more years, 10 more years, you know, and they said that in the seventies and then they said it in the eighties and they said it in the nineties and then they said it in the 2000s. And, you know, and here we are another 10 years. They've been saying 10, 10 more years for 40 years. And he said that sort of tongue in cheek, not because he didn't support the, the technology, but it is the reality of doing something. This is a difficult area where the potential upside is huge, but the journey to sort of get there is is very, very long. So I find it kind of ironic, you know, wherever he, wherever Fred is upstairs, he's probably having a laugh because, you know, your friend's saying, uh, you know, 10 more years. And it's like, that's what he used to say sort of jokingly all the time. But that's the, that's the reality of technology breakthrough, no? When I started in 2005, at the time, I, the, my last period in Albemarle, I was busy in, in business development. And one thing indeed you see that to really introduce a new pro- process, a catalyst is five years, process is 10 years, at, at least. Eh? So so my idea was if we start in 2005, by 2015, 2016, we have something to put in the markets. I think that is possible. It's not that we are so far from that. But indeed, maybe the, the handicap that we've had is that we have not been a, enough able to learn from our mistakes. There are a lot, have been a lot of people have invested in this, a lot of companies and uh, maybe uh, someone should organize a, a, a conference on uh, failures in biomass conversion and everyone tell so that we can learn each other what went wrong because yeah you know it's an old old story from we learn from our mistakes but no one wants to ever admit they made mistakes so we cannot learn I was working at shell we had what we had one uh, conference every year it was called the cat cracking mishap course it, a, a mishap meeting. It was about mishaps, so accidents, which happened on a cat cracker, you know, which can be quite dramatic. And, you know, in fact, it's one where I learned the most about operating a cat cracker, really. Later on, because the people were, everyone was so shocked about the name, they changed it into operations uh, course. But in fact, it was a very good, cor- a very good meeting. What I is trying to say, to analyze, okay, what went wrong in all these places? Not to put blame on people, but to say, well, what can we learn from this? And I think the story is quite consistent. So based on this, we can choose now a better ways to come to a success. And also, uh, not only on the technical side, but also on the business side, because of course, the low oil prices, of course, have not made it easier. Huh? And so what you see now is that many people who are uh, active in the, the biomass field 
are also focusing on higher end products like uh, polymers uh, and all, all, you know, not only fuels. And and which makes sense because uh, I think if you make a biorefinery like these guys are thinking of in Rotterdam, just like in an oil refinery, you cannot make 100% specialties. The the best refineries at the time were 10% petrochemicals and 90% fuels. I see something similar for biomass, that we make make some uh, specialties, which we can do, but which also uh, you know, can support the, the initial cost of keeping, uh, you know, to have a cash flow positive and then start making more and more fuels. So when it's uh, mature, you can you have a, a 1090 or 2080 uh, combination. So coming back to the policy side of things, where can policy assist? And then while I'm asking that, you you know that uh, European Commission has just come out with a, a clean energy for all Europeans uh, package. And as part of that, their plan is to phase down and cap further 1G, put into place a mandate for um, advanced biofuels. So what's your view of, of that kind of policy? And is a policy like a California LCFS better for advanced biofuels or something else? Look, I'm, I'm not an expert in the details of these policies. And even for experts, it's hard to predict what the intended and unintended effects are. I mean, in the past, we have had some policies in Europe which definitely were not good. I mean, that they, and, and everyone knows that. My feeling of this new policy is that I have a good feeling about it because indeed, look, of course, I'm interested to help bio, biofuels, but I think uh, what's important is that you have policies which which are fair actually lead to the result. I mean, the, the result which 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 we are looking for is a reduction of of CO2 and other uh, environmental uh, emissions. And whether that's done with with biofuels or electrical cars or uh, or methanol from 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 uh, sun, let the let the best. Best uh, player win. That's how, I, in that sense, I'm very free markets thinking. So having said that, what I see now since, since this directive is from, from that, that, that it, it is stimulating the area. Um, because, uh, like I mentioned, this, this, this idea about uh, Rotterdam biorefinery, et cetera. People are starting to ask questions, coming with initiatives, uh, not not that they're investing, but looking for solutions because, you know, okay, just first first generation uh, biofuels is not enough. We need to do the next step. So how can we do that? So I think I think that is it is stimulating. Of course, you have you have competition, the competition, which I'm really the most worried about, not because it's a good competition, but because that is not properly regulated is the electrical vehicles already now i've heard some politicians say well we need to go to 100 to electrical cars just like the rapeseed oil now we're electrical cars another disaster waiting to happen because you say first of all okay so you assume that electricity is produced by renewable means eh? at, at least that but even then the electric cars of course are um, uh, zero carbon zero co2 or hard nearly CO2, but what you really need to do then is really to do a complete life cycle and analysis of these systems. And then uh, it is not CO2, and you have other problems uh, like 
what are you going to do with, with the batteries? How are the batteries produced? How are you going to recycle them? Which are not really addressed. So I think that is missing. There, there, we, we need to, uh, there need to be ways to assure that you really have a honest comparison between, uh, battery electrical cars, uh, or maybe biomass, uh, let's say biofuels or, uh, methanol fuel cell based electrical cars in the future. Like I said, I believe a better solution will be to have a fuel cell running with, with methanol or ethanol. I was talking with uh, one of those Tesla owners <laughs> and uh, several of the uh, people who are active in this area are excited and uh, have the Tesla. And so I was trying to explain them that battery may not be the best solution. And in the end, he said, oh, so then the battery of my next electrical car will be methanol. I said, exactly, or ethanol. And in fact, Several of the car manufacturers, uh, Toyota, Nissan, all the, yeah, they're, they're working on this. They're working on this. This is something which is not yet in, included in, uh, in, in, let's say, all the legislation, etc. And we have to be careful that, uh, that we are not suddenly after another five years, we come to the conclusion, oh, what did we do now? Now we are stuck with all these battery electrical cars. And that's not really the solution we were, we needed. And in the meantime, we, we did not stimulate enough the, the, the fuels based, uh, the low carbon fuels. It seems like what you're saying is really we should be technology neutral and allow proper space for technologies to develop and, uh, and then let the market decide, uh, based on that and, and maybe given some criteria that includes carbon or carbon reduction. Carbon and also complete life cycle analysis. So also the consequences of what are we going to do with all those batteries? And that can change things quite a lot. Well, Paul, it's been so great talking with you today. We will end it there. And I hope that you come back and talk to us more as you continue your adventure with Antacy. Really appreciated you sharing your, especially what happened with Cure and what we can all learn from that. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Please do us a favor before you go. Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and hopefully benefit from it. Thanks so much for helping out. If you're looking for more insight on low carbon fuels and vehicles issues or future fuels issues, sign up for my free weekly newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. That's the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.